expressed on this program are those of the individuals who speak them, and not necessarily those of Portsmouth Community Radio, its Board of Trustees, members, volunteers, or underwriters. Good evening, and welcome to Spirit Radio. I am your host, Willie Hassel. Along with my co-host, Lynn Nickerson, we will take you on a journey a journey into the unknown where the paranormal becomes the normal. A journey to a world cloaked in darkness where reality becomes a thin veil. So sit back, relax, and join us as we venture into the shadows, the darkness, the unknown, and back. And good evening once again, and welcome to Spirit Radio, the Paranormal Experience. I am your host, Willie Hassel, your gatekeeper to the dark side, your guide to the realm of the unknown, the unseen, the unthinkable. And yes, as always, she is the lovely, she is the mystical, she is the mysterious. She is Lynn Nickerson. Good evening, Lynn. How are you? Good evening, Willie. How are you doing? I'm cold. Yeah. Well... I'm afraid I'm going to wind up being damaged goods because this snow is driving me crazy. <laughs> well, I'm already damaged goods, so I'm not worried about it. I mean, I'm going to be over the top. <laughs> I can't see out my windows, and that's no <laughs> lie. <laughs> that's, that's, that's not a good thing. We're being buried alive. Yeah, I know it. I know it. <sighs> oh. Well, maybe it'll rain soon. <laughs> Melt all the snow. Yeah, maybe it'll be 70 degrees tomorrow, right? <laughs> I wonder how our, our guest is faring, where he's at. We'll have to ask him. Yes, we will have to ask him that, see how mm. the weather is out there. And so I will now go ahead and introduce our guest for okay. tonight. Okay. And uh, our guest tonight is Rick Osman. And could there really be a centuries-long international conspiracy to cover up the knowledge of ancient visitors to North America. Well, tonight's guest may have the idea, the the uh, the answer. The answer. Yeah. Yeah, he's got a lot of I, ideas. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> okay, I'll get it. Uh, with an associates of science in laser and electrical optics technology, Rick worked for defense contractors for a number of years and then took a job with the U.S. Navy as a civilian with an engineering support field activity unit specializing in radar, night vision, and laser equipment for surveillance and munitions guidance. Most of his work was in the direct support of Special Operations Forces. 
But all those years, Rick was also reading everything he could to find out about weird and unusual history, archaeology, cryptozoology, cryptography, and hollow earth theory. After leaving government employment in 2005, Rick began his hunt for hidden knowledge full-time. He is the author of the book, The Graves of the Golden Bear, Ancient Fortresses and Monuments of the Ohio Valley. And he is here tonight to speak to us on Spirit Radio. Good evening, Rick. Welcome, Good Rick. Good evening. I can barely hear you guys. Okay. Oh, no. Not again. Uh, we get that from time to time. Um, I think Willie will try and turn up the volume a little bit. Okay. I think it's, you got snow uh, on your microphone. <laughs> that, that might just be what it is, Rick. <laughs> you can see it, through the mics. Yeah. It is It is so cold out here that the sound is frozen. That's what it is. That, that's it, yeah. <laughs> we is, actually had a pretty nice day here today. Don't, don't, come on. Don't tell us that. Oh, i, I got to rub it in a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We'll, we'll give you that a little bit. <laughs> How nice I, was I, it? Uh, 42 for a high, I oh. think, and sunny and a little breezy. Nice day. Felt like spring. Ah. <sighs> We'll get some. I'm sure it's on uh, the way. Three or four months from now. <laughs> exactly, yeah. About four more months it'll start. Well, Rick, your book is quite a departure from your, you know, your regular career, isn't it? Well, yes and no. Um, my discipline, you know, what I studied and what I practiced as a career had a lot to do with life. And one of the things that is part and parcel of my research and, and the book is the line of sight communications network that was established in this on this continent as some of it as much as 2000 years ago so a line of sight is optical so mm. it kind of fell into natural that part yeah well you know you do know fritz zimmerman right i do yeah i think he's pretty much in agreement with most of this isn't he yeah, Fritz and I have worked together some, uh, and I also, you know, i got to give credit where credit is due. A lot of the other researchers pointed me in the right directions for some things, and, and I go, you know, to help them when I can. Uh, but also people who follow the work, like just last week, I got a letter from a guy a couple counties away that, you know, there's a mound over here in such and such a place, and I've never seen you write about it, but I think it's in your line the line of sight. So I got on Google Earth and looked it up and got on Smithsonian Institute Bulletin and looked it up and by George, I believe he's right. So everybody helps. Yeah. Credit where I can. Um, well, for the listening audience that's not familiar with uh, Rick's book, it's The Graves of the Golden Bear, Ancient Fortresses and Monuments of the Ohio Valley. And what Rick is doing is he's trying to establish um fact against what is uh, generally accepted as as truth in academia. And it seems that um, the United States has willfully been denying, dismissing, ridiculing, obfuscating, and in many cases lying in an attempt to make the obvious um, the obvious and voluminous evidence of contact in America prior to Columbus go away. Um, academia does not want to believe that those who were here before Columbus were other than Native Americans. So that's pretty much the focus of the book is trying to uncover who was here and to find 
evidence that supports it. And there's a lot of information that's just been swept under the carpet. Um, as well as the evidence that the United States and the predecessor states, England, France, Spain, all knew of it and also swept it under the rug. That's right, they did. Would you like to talk a little bit about the Discovery Doctrine? Sure. The Doctrine of Discovery comes from a papal bull that was issued in 1452. There was a previous one, I believe it was in 1072. I'm not sure of the exact date of it. But mm-hmm. The 1452 bull is entitled Terra Nullis, which is Latin for empty land. And that bull gave authority to the Christian conquerors, conquistadors, and others if they came across a land that was inhabited by the other the Christians. In other words, if there were no Christians there, no nobody else mattered, and you could take the land and enslave the people who are not Christians because uh, they're not Christians. And this was a legal so document, correct, giving them the right to do that? Yes. Okay. Uh, that, that's how it was used, because the Church was the world court of its day. Wow. And the conquistadors, etc., took it to heart, and, and in some cases they took it too far, and the church came back and said, no, you can't do that. That's not what we meant. But for the most part, everything that's happened since then, 1492 on, mm-hmm. the land claims of European powers that occupied the Americas are based on that document. Go back far enough, that's how it turns out. Well, you know, if there were any Christians in the Americas for an extended period of time, then that land claim would be null and void. Mm-hmm. Because, well, there were Christians here when they came to conquer it. So that's what I think is the root basis of the reticence to recognize any traffic before Columbus. And those- they already recognized that Vikings slash Norse occupied one little part of Canada mm-hmm. because the evidence is irrefutable. And they were considered Christian, right? They were. That's At that time? Problem. Yeah. When, when Leif Erikson was dispatched to Greenland, part of his mission, in, in addition to visiting his biological father, his mission was issued by the King of Norway, who was his foster father, and it was to check up and make sure they were still practicing Christianity. (laughs) So any colony that was set up in North America by Leif Erikson was, by default, a Christian colony. Now, where that went awry is he didn't lay a claim to it with with the Church. If that had happened, um, well, all bets would be off. That is one reason, I, although I don't talk about it in the book, that is one reason that the Vinland map was so reviled for, what, 40 years. Are you aware of the Vinland map? Vinland, I've heard of it, yes. Okay, it was a map that was, in essence, donated to Yale, and Yale has been testing and arguing for 40 years about its authenticity. Did you say 40 years? Right now, it's pretty much on the, yes, it is, but we need more experts. Did you say 40 years, Rick? Yes. It was 1964, I believe, when Yale finally accepted the document, and they immediately insured it for like $18 million. 
jeez. <laughs> and what is what is being claimed then? Why is there so much controversy around it? The controversy was that it couldn't possibly be real because it's dated to the late 14th, or I'm sorry, middle of the 14th century. In other words, 1350s or so. Oh. Well, nobody could possibly have drawn a map of the Americas before Columbus. They weren't here. Was here before Columbus. It'd <laughs> be kind of hard to do, wouldn't it? Oh, and then they got into things like, well, you know, anybody can buy ancient parchment and stick it into an old book, or uh, well, nobody could make ink like that because it didn't have the right chemicals. And it turned out, well, yeah, they did. Um, the, the various and sundry tests and counter arguments, etc., that have gone into it uh, for forty years have always been countered. So. The controversy is still kind of there, but the map certainly has a lot of uh, apparent authenticity to it. Okay, just... It can't be. It just can't be, because there was nobody here before Columbus. For just a second, I want to get, in in, in just a minute, I want to get cover the information that, that, that strongly supports the fact that we've been visited many, many times before. But just what would happen if they finally did admit that there were others here, other than Native American, could have been Romans, could have been Phoenicians, could have been the Vikings. Um, what would happen if they admitted this now, at this point what in time? What could happen is that all the tribes would say, hey, look, you don't have legal sovereignty for this, and we want it back. And essentially they'd get more than their reservations is the idea, right? Yes. Well, think about how much public land is held by the United States government. Yeah. The Bureau of Land Management holds, what is it, 200 million acres or some ridiculous amount? Okay. What about the implications with our European connections? For instance, France. Well, France kind of backed out. France is out of the picture. What about Spain? Well, Spain would not have had a legal claim. Well, they didn't... Columbus never made it to North America anyway. He made it to the Caribbean and part of Central America. He never truly made it in North America. So he that may not actually have any claim. Spain ran across people who had crosses and uh, talked about a trilogy of gods. Mm. Uh, and that's why the Franciscans and the Jesuits showed up in numbers and particularly Mexico. They wanted to find out what was really up there. Hmm. Okay, other than the argument about the Native Americans, um, how about if we start with Virginia Steen McIntyre and her discovery, and it was in Mexico, right? Correct. Of, of the 250,000-year-old bones? Two, yeah, 210 to 260,000. She she did some amazing work there. Mm -hmm. She took uh, samples from five, five different samples from each of five different stratas and tested each strata five different ways and came up with fairly consistent numbers throughout. Mm -hmm. But the paper was thrown out because there simply weren't any people here then, period. No, <laughs> forget it, go away. And uh, her entire career was... Right on the line. Hard. 
And you know, she she tells about her the the test results, and she's almost apologetic, saying, "I know it sounds like they're really really old, but that's what the test results are saying." And it's really sad that it we is. we are that Im- immobile, that unmoving. To admit that there were people here before, I don't understand why it's such a big leap. But for those who don't know, this woman was working in Mexico, and she found these bones. And the significance is that there were people here about 250,000 years ago living on the North American continent long before Columbus got here. And they just don't want to admit it. Pardon me? She didn't find any of it. What she did was she was called in to arrive at a gate on artifacts and remains oh. that others had found. So that's what she did. Mm-hmm. She took the samples, did the tests, and the results came back with those phenomenally old ages. That's and just they, amazing. They, the community would not accept that. That simply can't be true, period. And yet that's what the testing said. The testing doesn't lie. <laughs> okay, how about um, this... Prince Madoc, um, there is there is the belief that the Welsh were here, correct? Yes. And that was... Um, oh, go ahead. Yeah, Prince Madoc, and that's, that's pretty much where I started my research because of um, his association with a, a, a fortification. It's actually just a couple hours away from me along the Ohio River. The local legend has it that Prince Matic in 1170 departed Wales with a whole colony's worth of people, tools, animals, you name it, and ended up there where he got into a, he and the entire colony, got into a uh, battle with natives and got wiped out. The ones that didn't die actually were assimilated by the natives. And what time period was that, Rick? What time period? But further research indicated to me, to my satisfaction, that Prince Maddox was actually much earlier, like 570, and um, and probably did make it over here, but he didn't build those fortifications. He was probably reusing fortifications that already existed when he got here. So actually, the, the language Ogam, right? The, that was that was related to the, the Irish and not the Welsh, is that right? Yeah, and and Ogham isn't truly a language; it's a writing system. Oh, okay. But um, but yeah, it's it's more closely associated with the Irish. Um, there were also Iberian versions of it, and probably we think North African shorthand that mm. would have been Tiffanog writing if it weren't in shorthand. So they would have but, come after Madoc or before. After, wasn't it? The Ogam Celts, mm-hmm. uh, probably before, during, and after. Oh. Well, there you go. There's some evidence right there saying that we were occupied by other than Native Americans. Right. So, But, however, there's a big but there. Mm-hmm. If they were Celtic Christians, that means they were Chaldee and not Catholic, and it wouldn't fall under the... Oh, really? And... What is exactly the difference, since there wasn't the Church of England at the time? <laughs> what is Chaldee right. exactly? The Church of the Chaldees existed before the Catholic Church did, and, and was established in Great Britain. 
And, uh, and they were not Catholic. They finally succumbed, for the most part, to Catholicism towards the end of the Crusades. And they were still around after the Templars had been outlawed. But their numbers were so vastly reduced, um, they did contribute warriors to the Crusades, but they were not under the command, direct command of the Pope. And that kind of you know, made, made the church... Roman Church at odds with Chaldees. So we're talking like the first century, first millennia A.D., right? With the Chaldee and the the Welsh and Madoc yes. coming over. Um, let me ask you, backing up just a little bit, what about the Phoenicians? Do you do you think that they were inland, like through Lake Superior and Lake Erie? I think there's no reason they would not have been. The only reason I didn't talk about them extensively in the book is because they would not contribute to the whole fear, and that's what it is, fear by the government of, for their sovereigns. The Phoenicians would have been pre-Christian, and they wouldn't mm-hmm. have mattered under the doctrine of discovery. Okay. Okay, well then... would the Carthaginians. Carthaginians? But the Romans would. Right. And they were here supposedly what, second century? Two hundreds, three hundreds? They've been here before that. Really? The Romans captured Carthage and you hear that they destroyed it utterly, which they did, but not before they rifled through everything they could find, particularly records, particularly trade routes and mine locations and things like that. That's what they really wanted from Carthage. They didn't care about the land. That's why they sold salt. Sowed salt in it. They didn't care about the land. They just wanted what they could gain in knowledge. So, do you suppose that they participated in working the mines, like uh, was it Isle of Royale in Michigan? Do you think they're the Phoenicians, uh, possibly? But they were really traders. They wouldn't have been the miners themselves. I don't think. Who do you think were? Romans, they like to enslave people. Yeah. Nice guys. But the, the mines on Isle Royal go back much further than the Phoenicians. Really? The oldest mines there could be seven or 8,000 years old. Who do you think was working them? I have no idea at that time. Oh, that's that'd be a fascinating but line of... Uh... By... By about uh, 1300 B.C., probably the Minoans knew about it because they were the big copper vendors in mm-hmm. the Mediterranean. Okay, so how about the um, the skeletons that were found? Um, there were some giant races. And some diminutive races. And some diminutive. I was going to get to that, too. <laughs> well, well, what do you think? Who do you think they were? Well, they were big fellers and little fellers. <laughs> um, Be more specific, please. Interestingly <laughs> enough, just this past uh, couple of weeks, word has come that Indonesia is about to recognize a new hominid species called Orampendex. And it is a diminutive walking upright humanoid type almost eight but not quite almost so, a foot how sorry? tall how tall is it about a foot 
about three. Oh, three feet? Okay. Three to four is what, what they're reporting. And there's more than one qualified anthropologist has cited and photographed and measured tracks and studied habits. So there is a, a diminutive humanoid type out there. But, you know, how closely related are they to, say, the Flores Island hobbits? Well, they're about the same size and probably closer than we want to think about. Yeah, I guess. As far as the so-called giants, that's not a North American phenomenon. That's a world phenomenon. Right. So but, I don't even know how to address that one. A lot of people think that they were, I don't know, offshoots of the Anunnaki. I don't know. Because they vary in height. So large individuals. And I do mean large. Some of them are eight and a half feet tall. Yeah, but and 11. Had, you know, in historical times. There was a Roman emperor who was rumored to be eight and a half feet tall. Mm. Um, I can't get his name exactly right. Maximinius, I believe, is how it goes. Oh, yeah, that, yeah, Maximinius II. Yeah, and he was supposed to be eight and a half feet tall. And he had started out as a foot soldier and became emperor. Wow. You had uh, Ivar the Boneless, the Viking leader who conquered, well, about half the British Isles, <laughs> and he was supposed to be nine feet tall. And in 1962, I believe it was, archaeological dig in northern Britain, where he was supposed to have fallen in battle, came up with a femur of a nine-footer. Wow. <laughs> you had, in, in very recent times, comparatively speaking, you had Angus McGaskill, who's uh, a sideshow for Peaky Barnum. He was seven foot nine. Of course, yeah, Barnum listed him as a little taller than that. But. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to see. And uh, he was not a pituitary giant. He lived to be, I believe, 49, something like that. And this was, he died in like 1865. So, you know, it wasn't when they had the wonders of medicine to keep people alive. Hmm. Well, I do think that there were several races of giants because they do vary a bit. And I think that it's more than just, you know, a genetic aberration or just, you know, as people evolve. I think it's more than that because I think there's too much of a disparity between seven footers and 11 footers. So I kind of think that there were different races. But anyway, we can address a little bit more of that. We're getting to the bottom of the hour at the moment. So what we're going to do, Rick, is take a short break and play a couple of songs, and then we're going to get right back to you. So don't go away. All right. All right. Thanks. Supernatural Magazine, the U.K.'s newest paranormal magazine, provides support to Spirit Radio, the paranormal experience. It is the magazine's goal to bring every aspect of supernatural news and research from around the world under one roof to create a universal platform for all those interested in the supernatural. More information is available at supernaturalmagazine.com. You are listening to Spirit Radio, the Paranormal Experience on WSCA 106.1 FM, and we'll be right back after this short break.
Hey, and welcome back to Spirit Radio, the Paranormal Experience. On WSCA 106.1 FM in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And let's see, from the community... I want to start them all over again. Uh, incidentally, that was uh, Merle Fankhauser from his uh, newest album, and that, that was uh, Messages from the Dome. And those uh, odd noises in there, uh, uh, recorded noises from underneath the ocean off the coast of Malibu, California, supposedly from an alien undersea base. And anyway, from the community calendar, the Stratum Seniors 76ers. The Stratum 76ers is a local social organization open to all seniors of Stratum and surrounding communities. Meetings are held the third Tuesday of each month from September to June from 11.30 a.m. to 2 p.m. at the Stratum Fire Station Municipal Room. A potluck lunch is provided by members followed by information, speakers, or programs. Fun field trips are planned by Stratum Parks and Recreation Department. Informative flyers and telephone numbers are available at the Stratum Wigan Library at 10 Bunker Hill Road. For more information, call 603-778- 7600 or 603-580-1230. And we have some upcoming guests to the broadcast. Our, uh, yes, our upcoming guest list starts with February 14th. And for their third appearance, Tom D'Agostino and his wife Arlene Nicholson, who are authors of at least 13 books to date on local paranormal activity, uh, will be joining us to entertain us with their latest ghostly investigations. February 21st, with the types of symbolism popularized recently in the books like Da Vinci Code, author Robert Sullivan will join us to discuss his latest book titled Cinema Symbolism, which is similar to the theme presented in the 1970s book by Wilson Bryant Key titled Subliminal Seduction. Uh, February 28th, we'll be joined by two men from law enforcement uh, in Arizona. Their names are Sergeant Milford Jr. and retired Lieutenant John Dover, who have offered to share their strange and paranormal experiences while in the line of duty as rangers for the Navajo Nation in Arizona. March 7th, Mary Joyce will join us to discuss some of the interesting topics found on her website, which is titled Skyships Over Cashers and Cashers is a place in North Carolina. We'll also touch on the subject of one of her books that takes a closer look at the little people, or maybe the Pukwudgies, of Cherokee legend. There are little people all over the place. Uh, March 14th, we will be joined with um, by Preston Dennis Dennett. He's a longtime MUFON investigator and author of many bo- books on UFOs, and he'll be making his third appearance um, and he'll be more closely exploring the UFO phenomena that occurred in the Hudson Valley of New York during the 1980s. And that's uh, that's it for our guest lineup. Okay, and we're going to go back to the phone in just a minute to uh, tonight's guest, Rick Osman. But first I want to mention a, uh, an event that is coming up on April 18th, that's uh, Saturday, the Essex County Ghost Project. Parafest 2015. It's going to be held at the Ashworth by the Sea Hotel at Hampton Beach, and they're going to have a number of great uh, guest speakers, including Lauren Coleman, cryptozoologist, Karen Mossy, an EVP specialist, 
Steve Fermani, a UFO researcher, and a couple of people I've heard of, uh, Willie Hassel and Lynn Nickerson, I believe. Oh, yeah, yes. yeah. They are going to be uh, speaking at this <laughs> event, along with many more interesting guests, as well as there will be demonstrations and vendor tables throughout the day. And this entire event is a benefit for the restoration of the historic Hilldale Cemetery in Havel, Mass. And as I said, it is being uh, put on by Essex County Ghost Project of Havel, Mass., who uh, Tom Spitaleri is the director, and he is going to be our guest here on the show on April 4th, and he will be telling us a lot more about the event that night. And again, what is the date on that, Willie? It is April 18th. The 18th, okay. And so now, back to the phone, and welcome back, Rick Osman. Hi, Rick. Welcome back. Thank you. Glad to be back. (laughs) (laughs) After all that research you've put into the book, now maybe you'd like to highlight um, the evidence that supports your theory of the various people, races, cultures that were here. And I did want to touch on, could you tell us a little bit about more about the Roman coins that were found? Sure. Yeah, I can tell you that as of, let's see, as of about two and a half years ago, we had compiled a list of around 400 coin finds that were all along waterways, uh-huh. uh, rivers, lakes, and uh-huh. seashores. Uh, they spanned from the first century B.C. to the early 4th century A.D. Um, wow. And the concentration was in the 2nd century, early 2nd century A.D. But there were coins spanning a great period of time. That's amazing. More than just dropping and out of somebody's pocket. Last October, I ran into an individual. And, oh, I need to mention that uh, up until a year ago last October, all of them that we knew about were east of the Rockies. Uh-huh. Then I, I was on a speaking tour in Utah, and a guy came up to me and said, "Hold out your hand," and he dumped twenty-four Roman coins into me. Oh, and and I said, uh, "This isn't all of them, is it?" He said, "No, well, he had three hundred and eighty-six, all hit with a metal detector. No, all of them in a small area." And we're from Utah. Yeah. Wow. Was it yeah, near a river? So. Very nearly doubled the number of coins we knew about. Unfortunately, none of them are found in an archaeological context. It's not a controlled environment. There is no verifiable provenience. It'd be easily refuted. Right. And where exactly were they? There's been a lot of other evidence. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with what they call Native American artifacts and their round stone balls. They're pretty uniform. They're about slightly smaller than a cue ball, a little bit harder than a cue ball. And most of them are polished. They're, they're quite nice. Where have they been found? They look like they've been turned on a lathe, uh, not a tool that the Native Americans are known to have used. But they're very consistent with a type of ammunition used by the Romans in their artillery and yes, they had artillery. It just did not use gunpowder. It used torsion spring power. And it could throw that stone ball a very good distance and at a high enough velocity to do significant damage. And we found hundreds of those. Where? All over. All over Utah or waterways. all? Particularly by waterways? Yep. And they were smooth stones. How large were they? 
about the size of a cue ball, slightly smaller than a tennis ball. Oh my gosh! And okay. The stone. There are there are also some fired clay examples, but the stone examples, like I said, many of them show signs of having been turned on a lathe. Um, Were they shiny and I, smooth? I'm sorry. Were they shiny and smooth? Some of them are. Yes, they're polished. In fact. Oh. There is an individual in Florida. Uh, he's a jeweler by trade. He has one that he claims is engraved with the sigla of the Ninth Roman Legion. Ah, I was going to ask you about that, too. <laughs> Continue. Yeah, Wasn't that a nice segue? Yes, very nice. <laughs> the, the Ninth Roman Legion disappeared from history in 117 A.D. They had been stationed in Britain. In particular, at that time, they were still at York. Uh, they had built two fortresses at York. The first one was in 78-79 A.D., and the second one was in 108. And then occupied it for about almost 10 years, and then they're gone. And they didn't get reassigned. There's no record of that. There's no record of them being disbanded. Uh, they simply disappear from history, all except for one individual who was a ranking officer in that outfit. His name was... Lucius Aemilius Carus. He shows up in history 25 years later, in 142, as the governor of Arabia Petraeus, which is one of the uh, provinces that Trajan had conquered and Hadrian um, had kept. Hadrian turned back some of the... Uh, Trajan captured, I believe, six new provinces and... In Britain. In Britain? All over. No, not just oh. in Britain. Arabia Petraeus is now in what we call Lebanon. Okay. Um, and, and in fact, it is Petra, the city of Petra. Oh, yes, yes. And you remember the Indiana Jones movie where they go through the Crescent Valley and they come up and they're going to go get the Cup of Christ? Yes. And there's this huge sandstone edifice. It's all carved out of living rock. It's beautiful. Yeah, well, that was carved by the Romans in 142 to 150 A.D. Oh, I didn't know it was the Romans. I thought it was Arabs. Yeah, that was the Roman treasury there. And that pass, that valley, is a natural toll booth along the Silk Road. That is the Silk Road. So the Romans were very good at collecting taxes on things passing through their territory. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I I believe, I can't prove it, but all the signs indicate to me that Carus spent 25 years in the Americas practicing his skills to toll, troll, tax the uh, Silk Road. How can he just... Governorship wasn't easy to come by either. Okay. Well, how how do you suppose he just disappeared for 25 years? Well, I believe it was a secret trade, just as the Carthaginians had done before them. There were goods here that were of value mm-hmm. in the old world, and the Romans didn't want anybody else to get them, so they kept it a secret. Well, when Rome died, the secret died with them. So the Romans were coming over here, building some of these fortresses and also working the mines? They, they were working the mines, and they would have used or modified fortresses that were already here. They may have built a few of their own. Oh. 
and they certainly made some modifications to a couple, um, but a lot of them were pre-existing. Um, the Adena features, if you will, mm-hmm. the Adena weren't known for building fortifications, yet they had all these ditches and moats around you know, their central mound or whatever. Uh, well, that's a fortification. It's, that's not ceremonial. I'm sorry. That is a fortification. Mm-hmm. And it was a practice that held up until, you know, the late medieval ages. Oh, so even, go ahead. even modern armies still build fortifications. So how long do you suppose the Romans were here or what? Number one, I think they were trading back and forth, and then I think maybe there were some that settled. But how many incursions do you suppose there were? Well, I don't. I really don't think colonization was a goal for the Romans. It may have been for some of the other cultures. But, but a few the of Romans, them came. The Romans were out for the money. Mm-hmm. Was, like I said, it was a secret trade deal, and and they just they wanted to make the money and take it home. And that was over so a period. They traded to the locals. Uh, was something that was totally consumable. Mm-hmm. Didn't leave much track. And that was we over. Know that, we know that that happened with other cultures. Okay, so they were probably we here. That the Romans traded vast distances in the old world because there were fourth-century Roman beads. Glass beads showed up in a fourth-century Japanese grave. Oh, really? And where was the Japanese grave? Was it in North America or was it in Japan? No, it was in Japan. Wow. You think the Romans were here then from 1st century B.C. to 4th century A.D.? About 500 years? or Yeah, the early, probably 325, 326 would be my, my guess. There are some other researchers that believe it extended up into about 530 A.D. But the Ninth Legion really Roman by then. It was rich families from the former Rome who were still practicing trade. Okay, so you think the Ninth Legion was probably here about the third century BC for a while? They were here. They were here from uh, about one seventeen, one eighteen AD. AD, and they and their descendants uh, probably until about three, three hundred, three twenty, someplace in there. Okay. Boy, we're really getting in trouble, aren't we? Because they were definitely Christian and Catholic. Well, no. Not, not, not the, so Romans? the Romans? The Romans. The official Roman religion, the state religion, up until Constantine in 326, was paganism. It was Roman paganism. Oh. But, but many of the individuals in the armies the legions practiced their own home religion. And and that's where the Ninth Legion comes in again because they had members from, wow, North Africa, Macedonia, Britain, Gaul, and, of course, Rome. There were Basques. at least six to nine languages and about that many different writing systems wow. within the Ninth Legion alone. And all of those languages and writing systems show up in pre-Columbian artifacts. Yeah. Um, how about the recurring symbols like the sun circle and the Celtic cross? Yeah, that's another one. The Celtic cross. That's not a Catholic symbol. No. But it is a Christian symbol. Mm-hmm. 
And a lot of Native so, Americans have similar, similar symbolism. Yeah, particularly uh, late Adena on up to the end of Mississippi, and you see that symbol everywhere. Yeah. Rick, how do you think the um, the Romans got here? Were they going down around Florida and then up the Mississippi? That I, I would have to call it conjecture because I don't know. Yeah. There are certainly coin finds all along the Gulf Coast, all up the Mississippi, into Missouri and Nebraska, uh, up, and many along the Ohio. So they were t- they were tolling the waterway. That's my contention, at least. Yeah. And they were using those fortresses to control the traffic to pay the toll. Just like Hadrian built a wall across Britain, it wasn't a military defense because it was no good at that. But it was really good at uh, flowing trade through a gate where they could charge a toll. <laughs> they were amazing, <laughs> weren't they? Yeah, that was a lot Sorry. of man hours to put that wall up. Yeah, that that's that's the only good answer, as far as I can see, because it's militarily it's a failure. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't do anything militarily. It just makes it inconvenient for someone with a horse and a cart to get through. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, <laughs> um, but someone with a boat could go around one end or the other. Wow. Okay, now I thought it was really neat that you um, brought to light the fact that U.S. fifty runs across the United States and that there are forts and monuments peppered along the road on either side, that they had used that as a trade route, kind of going east and west, right? Yeah, 50, 50 runs, uh, most of it, not all of it, Yeah, runs ancient trade routes. And when I say ancient, some of them are literally thousands of years old. But then again, so does US-40. And both of them both routes had the assistance of one native or another of saying, well, you know, we already know the best way to take trade because we've been doing it for a long time, and this is where you want to go. So that's – and in Indiana, a lot of U.S. 50, not all of it, uh, follows what is called a secondary buffalo track. Uh, the primary buffalo track is called the Buffalo Trace, and the – what they call the eastern woods buffalo mm-hmm. would cross the Ohio at what is now the falls of the Ohio, and it was then too, but it's at Louisville, Kentucky, Clarksville, Indiana. And they would, you know, herd, migrate up through Indiana on a west-northwest track called the Buffalo Trace. And part of the U.S. 50 network, if you will, in this case it's U.S. 150, follows that track. Well, so did the first plank road that the U.S. built, very first one, followed that track. That's amazing. And, of course, natives used that track when they needed to go get some buffalo meat or hides or whatever they needed. That's where they got them. Um, we followed, that we, the United States of America, followed ancient trade routes with our road system. <laughs> Not very creative, huh? <laughs> well, it, it actually is one of the more practical things this government has done. Truly, yeah, yeah, utilitarian. Um, then, weren't the, the fortresses weren't they built for the for the uh, purpose of signaling, like with fires or lights? Well, right. The, 
the many of the towers along that route and everywhere, but mostly along the river, there were stone towers. And they were part of a relay system. Think of it as a telegraph system, except it didn't use wires. It used either reflected sunlight in the daytime or it used fires at night. And there would be a station, in many cases, they were three or four miles apart. They were actually very close together. The longest one I found is about 15 miles. But it required a clear line of sight with all the trees out of the way, which wasn't much of a problem once you got to where I am in Indiana. Everything west of here was prairie then. There weren't many trees. It was all grassland. <clears throat> and the U.S. Army used a very similar uh, principle in the 1860s, 70s, and 80s in the Navajo War, the Chikorea War, and they chased Geronimo for, what was it, 22 years with okay. an entire regiment. And the Army was using what they called a heliograph. They could bounce signals. Their greatest distance was 183 miles of relay. They got a signal, a message, a 100-word message across 183 miles in 11 minutes. Well, mm -hmm. that, that's faster than a telegraph would do it but they used Morse code in English. And the, the system is considered to be a low probability of intercept, yet I'm convinced that Geronimo and the rest of the Chikoria knew how to read it and where to be to read it. Yeah, those still exist throughout Arizona, too, signal towers in ruins. Yeah. So Yeah, yeah. They, the system was used all over the continent. Yeah. Uh, I'm, con I'm convinced that the native peoples, as well as the invaders, used reflected sunlight and lamps or something like it to signal on a regular full-time basis. It was a large labor-intensive network of communication. Well, that's amazing. Hmm. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Yeah, and I kind of agree <laughs> with you. I think uh, Fritz probably agrees with you, too. <laughs> you know, I thought it was really interesting the way you... Um, end of the book a couple of things you were talking about the pygmies and the giants and how everything is um getting lost at the smithsonian institute it it amazes me the the breadth of this cover-up well it's not just in the u.s anymore uh, it's bled over into canada and mexico um because what? the sovereign governments there here are afraid that the secret will be discovered and their sovereignty will be threatened by the natives who know that they didn't do it right. You know, what about the people that were here before the Native Americans? Because we're talking between that 250,000 to 9,000 years ago. Um, well, what about their yeah, rights? I, mean, I guess that'll uh, be an issue, too. Those people have probably died out, but... Yeah, they did. I mean, the genetic uh, tracks kind of died out. In really, Native Americans take it over. There are exceptions. For instance, the Ojibwa Nation uh -huh. and some of the other Algonquin-speaking peoples have genetics that uh, are part European. Ah, oh, that's interesting. You have a whole whole group of bodies that went over in Florida. Uh, 7,000 years old, recoverable with DNA from their brain, and it's part European. In fact, it's mostly European. And can't they decide, um, tell whether it's ancient European or if it's more recent? They can, can't they? 
I'm uh, sorry? Can't they determine if it's ancient European or more recent? Uh, They're different uh, markers, yeah. right? Yeah, it depends on how good a shape the DNA is in when they recover it. Um, if, if there are a lot of holes in it, then, of course, the accuracy goes way down. Yeah. But with the Wendover, they had 130 individuals who were not all closely related in a with European tracks. Wow. Talk about opening a can of worms. There's R1B1 for most of them, meaning they were Western Europeans. Yeah. Uh, basically the same people that showed up in the mummies in Mongolia. You know about those, right? No, I don't, but we're at the end of the hour, Rick. Darn it. <laughs> going to have to have you back on to tell us about that. Um, okay, I'll be happy to. Wonderful. Um, do you want to tell us about your website and or your books? Whatever you'd sure. like to. The okay. Book is the Graves of the Golden Bear, Ancient Fortresses and Monuments of the Ohio. It's available on Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble, and you can order it at Books a Million and a few others, or you can get it at the publisher, GraveDistractions.com. Um, or from Ancient American magazine. Oh, great. Or you can probably find it on ancientamerica.com, which is a website that I administer and contribute to once in a while, but most of the contribution is Chris Pinnifer. Um And I go to a few shows and conventions and stuff. Got one coming up the end of March in Lebanon, Missouri. It's actually a preppers convention. Oh, good luck with that. Right. Love to hear you speak when when you're in the area. And you have no website yet, right? Uh, not specifically. Okay. Me. I'm on Facebook as myself, as well as Graves of Golden Bear and Oopa Loopa Cafe, which is a show I did for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, congratulations and, uh, on that. That's all on Facebook. It's easy to find. All right. Well, we're, we're out of time, Rick. I'm so sorry, but thank you so much for coming on. Yes, thank you. My thank pleasure. you very much, Rick, for joining us. All right. I hope to do it again. Oh, absolutely. Have a good evening. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Good night, Rick. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay. Well, we've done it once again. We have gone over time. Mm. And that is uh, Spirit Radio, the paranormal experience for one more night. And Craig is coming right up. Okay. And good night, everybody, and thanks for listening.